You're listening to Radio Maria, a Christian voice in your home. We now present Carmelite Conversations on Carmelite Spirituality with Mark Danis and Francis Harry. Well, welcome back to Carmelite Conversations on Carmelite Spirituality. So great to be with you this week. Uh, I'm going to apologize up front uh, for uh, my voice, which is a bit challenged today. And um, I'm hopeful that my co-host here, Francis Harry, will take over the lion's share of the reading today. Francis, can I rely on you for that? <laughs> well, I don't know. We'll see. How's that for putting you on the spot? But you know what? Happy feast day of St. John of the Cross. Today Absolutely. is his big day. And so we rejoice in the gift of St. John of the Cross to all of us everywhere. And I hope everybody has done St. John of the Cross things, which would be deny yourself, pick up your cross, yes. and follow Jesus. Well, when that said, then I've been duly, um, um, you know, counseled on what I need to do in terms of struggling through this uh, little sickness I seem to have picked up. But um, in the interest of clear communication, we'll uh, sort of fill in where we need to and make sure that uh, we get the message across because St. John has a wonderful message for us here on his feast date. I have to say, Francis, before you lead us in prayer, um, I talked to you about this a little bit yesterday, but I was really struggling with this week's message, and that never mm-hmm. happens to me. Uh, honestly, I can share that with my listeners. I normally am able to pull together a, a number of sources, have an idea, and though it may take some time, the thoughts just seem to, to come together. I, I thank the Holy Spirit, the Blessed Mother, who protects us in our efforts to do that. But for some reason this week, I really struggled with it. And I have to say, um, I, I asked for St. John's intercession, for the Blessed Mother's intercession. I ultimately went to our day of recollection yesterday. We uh, had our day of recollection here in Dayton yesterday. Um, and when I went home, albeit a little early because of my illness, um, from there on, it seemed to just sort of open up. So, well, I have to uh, say, I think you were sharing in the agony I have in putting talks together. <laughs> you got a picture of what it's like for me. Yeah, yeah. I just hope I get a picture of what it's like for you. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, let us begin in prayer because we do have a wonderful message. And I say that only because I believe it was gifted to us by St. John of the Cross today, uh, a topic very near and dear to his heart and uh, also Uh, to another um, wonderful model of sainthood uh, for us, Blessed Elizabeth of the Trinity. We're going to reflect on her thoughts on St. John of the Cross's writings, uh, but let's begin in prayer. Well, John, um, Mark, before we do that, I would just want to say that uh, I do thank God for your gift of putting together uh, the programs. Um, You do have a very wonderful gift for that, so I thank God for you for that. All right, let us uh, pray. This is from St. John of the Cross. It's from his Spiritual Canticles, um, chapter 19, verse 4. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, O Lord, let your divinity shine on my intellect by giving it divine knowledge, and on my will by imparting to it divine love, and on my memory with the divine possession of glory. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Well, thank you, Francis. I um, I want to say up front, you know, we talked weeks ago, really, about the fact that, and it doesn't happen often, um, the very day that we'd be in studio happened to be, in this case, the feast day of one of the great Carmelite saints, uh, arguably, uh, you know, himself and uh, Teresa of Avila, the two uh, most prominent members of the order um, of Discalced Carmelites, and certainly for us as seculars. 
And so uh, maybe that had some impact on my inability to call my thoughts together, the fact that I was um, very respectful of St. John of the Cross and didn't want to uh, do him any discredit. So I started thinking about ways that the saints teach us. And of course, the obvious way is through their writings. If they've left writings, we uh, know there are many great saints who didn't necessarily write or leave messages, though we know about them from uh, other people who knew them, or at least what they had to say. The second is their own lives. And of course, in the case of John of the Cross, we can read the details of his life. And it both teaches us and affirms what we find in his writings. But the third way, and I think a very powerful way in many respects, is to see their life and their writings played out in another soul who also reaches the heights of sanctity and holiness. And I think that's the basis of our conversation today is to witness um, all through um, the writings and reflections of Elizabeth of the Trinity, Blessed Elizabeth of the Trinity, her understanding of John's profound teaching on the gift of silence. And how important is that for us in this season? Absolutely. We need that um, because the pull of the season in the secular world is naturally to a lot of noise, a lot of activity, uh, a lot of fervor in parties and uh, gift buying and really uh, can take its toll spiritually uh, in taking our attention off of the true meaning of the season, which is Christ. Yeah. And, you know, we talked briefly last week about the fact that... um, So many people put so much effort into the preparation of this season, the Advent season, which we're in now, and of course, anticipating Christmas. And they want to either create or recreate that perfect experience, or they want to find the perfect gift. And we sometimes forget that the perfect Christmas has already happened, and the perfect gift has already been given. We're just uh, encouraged to experience that gift, to uh, adore that gift, to receive that gift. And that's really what this season of Advent should be about. And it's ultimately what the season of Christmas is about, is receiving that gift. And in this case, what we want to talk about is the need for preparing ourselves in a very profound way, talking about the virtue. And I, I very deliberately use that term, virtue of silence. And uh, I think we may have used this quote before, Francis, but I'd, I'd like you to read that a quote by uh, Soren Kierkegaard uh, talking about uh, the importance of silence. The present state of the world and all of life is diseased. If I were a doctor and were asked my advice, I should reply, create silence, bring men to silence. The word of God cannot be heard in the noisy world of today. And this reminds me of this... uh, Dr. Seuss' story of the Grinch stealing Christmas, and he's talking about noise, noise, noise. I bet you've read that to your young daughter, I, haven't you? I have, you? and I've watched the, the little film, and I, I, I agree with you. I think it's funny um, how, in contrast, of course, the Grinch is not exactly the greatest proponent of uh, Christmas at the beginning of, this, of the uh, little 30-minute uh, uh, cartoon, but uh, how he refers to all the who's down in Whoville and, (laughs) you know, sort of uh, um, dismissively refers to the noise, noise, noise. And that's exactly, ironically, he's in concert with Soren Kierkegaard here in that he's, uh, uh, you know, arguing against what all of this season tends to bring to us. You know, it it doesn't take much to see how this has been 
thrust upon us. If you go to any mall, any weekend, uh, the last uh, many behind us are unfortunately the next two in front of us. Um, unfortunately, I would have to say in many respects, Satan appears to be winning this battle. Yeah, the Grinch uh, is still trying season. to steal Christmas, isn't yeah, he? <laughs> absolutely. Watch out. Well, <laughs> we got to get on our, our spiritual armor here. <laughs> in contrast to that, though, John offers us this alternative, this silence. Um, in fact, I think uh, to begin, maybe uh, the understanding of what it is that John has to say, not just about this season. John would argue this, I think, Francis, uh, at any time of the year, it's necessary uh, for us to practice this. He was adamant in uh, communicating this need to those he provided spiritual direction to. And I'd ask you to go ahead and read his quote. Yeah, this is to a, a Carmelite nun. Our most important task consists in remaining silent before this great God, silent with our desires as well as with our tongue. He understands only one language, that of silent love. Yeah, and that's love from that John phrase. of the Cross. Yeah, I love that phrase, uh, silent love. And there's actually another phrase he uses. And actually, um, other poems have been written about this uh, verse from the spiritual canticle. In fact, full books have been written about it. One of the books I was researching in an effort to try to pull together some notes was uh, referencing the very verse I'm going to uh, read here in a moment. Um, but I, I want to encourage our listeners, you know, one of the things uh, Francis and I uh, talk about in preparation for these programs is what do we want to title a program? What do you want the theme to be? Um, and this particular theme, which we perhaps should have shared at the beginning, but it's important <laughs> that we say it now, in the silence of the night, there is music. And of course, that should help us re reflect on silent night the song and there holy is night. music yeah. <laughs> silent night holy night absolutely putting them together in the silence of the night there is music yeah and john um, actually inspires that idea in this verse from the spiritual canticle the tranquil night at the approaches of the dawn the silent music the murmuring solitude john was a lover of the night he really was a saint who um, did his best praying, not unlike our Lord, by the way, in the night. And in his deepest interior silence, I believe John heard music. I believe he heard uh, a music that is beyond the reach of even the greatest composers uh, that we would be familiar with. Um, and here John, of course, is writing about that deep interior silence that he calls us to. And we don't want to just pass over this teaching as though somehow it's a simple idea that John's just uh, calling us to get away from the world. That is certainly true. He is calling us, however, into a much deeper silence. Um, this is really at the very center of John's teaching, at the very center of his theology and of his personal life. It's what he most desired in his life. For those who know the history of St. John of the Cross, he had at one point wanted to be a Carthusian. He wanted to leave the the order of Carmel, the original order of Carmel, before uh, Teresa came along to reform it and go and live in the silence of, uh, uh, of a Carthusian uh, monastery. But um, thankfully for us, uh, St. Teresa encouraged him to do otherwise. A and just to finish that theme of the centrality of this idea of silence in John's life, it is also represented in the ancient... Uh, observance, the ancient order, the rule um, that was handed down to us by Albert of Jerusalem, uh, this very key phrase. In silence and in hope, 
will be your strength. Yeah, and uh, for Elizabeth of the Trinity, who we'll talk about here in a few minutes, uh, that was also a very important central theme. In fact, it was the most important thing to Elizabeth. She was teased about the fact uh, by the other sisters in the Carmel how silence was so central to her practices of devotion and what was most important to her. But I want to just elaborate a little bit, and I'm going to ask Francis to take us through a list of um, what are known as the 12 degrees of silence, because I don't want us thinking silence of uh, as as simply the absence of noise. It is certainly that, but it is far greater than that. Um, this is actually from the Desert Fathers, teaching from the Desert Fathers um, in, in these various degrees of silence. We might even be able to add to these, although these, I think, are the most important. Um, and, and there's just a quick sort of definition of what each of these means, although uh, in a larger document there's greater explanation. And um, it's worth understanding that silence is more than just uh, the absence of noise, but um, w- would you take us through some of that, Francis? All right, I'll, I'll do a few of them, and then I'll share them with you. <laughs> All right, the first one, silence of the word, which means, you know, basically, my goodness, just stop talking. <laughs> and and we're talking this in, in terms of our prayer um, and, and in, in living a contemplative life. Yeah. Yeah, 24 by 7. In fact, there is a reference in one of the ancient, uh, I say ancient, one of the older documents in the Carmelite order about if um, uh, two words would suffice, a good Carmelite would never use three. I'm not saying it exactly right, Mm -hmm. but something to that effect. Mm -hmm. That was central uh, to Elizabeth anyway. I found reference to it in uh, some literature about her. I mean, it was, they were that adamant about it, you know, stop talking. And I'm going to do that right now and let you finish. <laughs> <laughs> All right. The second one, silence of movements or action. And then that will remind us of Psalm 46, verse 10, be still and know that I am God. The third degree of silence is the silence of the imagination. St. John the Cross counsels this is not the way to union. Yeah, this is you. You pointed this out to me before we came on, and I think it's worth mentioning. Now, John is talking at a very mature level of spirituality, where the imagination, the use of um, the uh, imagination in our prayer, really needs to cease because there are always uh, deficiencies in our own imagination. It's always tainted from our own perspective. It is very beneficial. Um, and as you reminded me, Francis, before we began the conversation, the Jesuits are very adamant, uh, Ignatian spirituality, very adamant about the use of the imagination in very, very meaningful and productive ways. But John would at some point say, that has to be still, that has to be To go into greater depths, to get into the um, music of silence. Right. Okay. Um, The fourth degree of silence is silence of the memory. So uh, you're thinking memory and imagination, Mm -hmm. faculties of the soul. Silence of the memory. John says this is the source of distraction in prayer. So you think of all those memories coming through while you're trying to pray. Um, The fifth degree is silence to the creatures, the call to solitude, oneness, aloneness with God. Uh, The sixth degree is silence of the heart or of the feelings, where the passions or the emotions are not prayer. Yeah, we sometimes fall victim to that, where we think, oh, I had a good prayer experience. Really? How do you know? Oh, I felt so good. Yeah, we can't depend on feelings. Feelings come and go. 
and what we do with them is what's important. But um, the way we feel is not a good measurement. It's not an accurate measurement of the depth of our prayer at all. <laughs> all right, the uh, seventh degree is silence of humility or self-love being sufficiently aware of our misery. Yeah, that actually comes from Teresa of Avila. Uh, as her definition of humility, it is a healthy recognition of our misery before the Lord, our need uh, for him, and of course, abandonment of self-love, the, the greatest challenge to our, our sanctity. Um, the next one, the eighth one, is silence of the spirit or of intelligence. God is ultimately beyond our intellect and i and i know that faith takes us beyond where intellect takes us so um, that's important for us the ninth degree would be silence of judgment and from luke six thirty seven, we get stop judging and you will not be judged and of course it, he meant more than that it's and i know we've discussed this before but it's not only don't judge people that should be a given don't judge circumstances. Don't evaluate circumstances in your life as good or bad. I think we'll say this later, but, you know, Elizabeth talks about how um, you know, somebody who's advancing on the road to sanctity would feel ashamed if they evaluated the circumstances that had occurred in their life as either good or bad. It's all God's will uh, manifesting itself in our life. So we are in no position to judge uh, the, the the benefit or or negative impact uh, to the circumstances in our life. And John counsels us, stop doing that. Because yeah, some of the most negative appearing experiences can be the most spiritually rewarding. Yeah, absolutely. All right, the 10th degree of science is the silence of the will. Our will must be abandoned into the will of God. Yeah, very easy to do, right? <laughs> <laughs> That's why we pray it every time we say the Our yeah. Father, thy will be done, it's because we need constant help, right? Um, 11, silence with oneself. We must also stop judging ourselves. You referred to that a little bit mm. before. And the 12th degree is silence with God. Now, I think you might need to explain this a little yeah. more. Well, I used a, a sub uh, a title here said, stop creating the golden calves. And by that, I mean, uh, you know, we have a great tendency to create our own image of God. It may not be uh, heretical, but, but nonetheless, it's still our perspective. We project onto God our own limitations and we need to stop doing that. We need to be silent before God and stop projecting thoughts into his head, which are really nothing more than the deficient thoughts that are in our own mind. And so we have to move beyond that. Well, I found this one quote that I think summarizes a lot of that Silence, and I can't remember who said this, so I'm sorry I can't share that. Silence begins with faith and blossoms in love. Silence begins with faith and blossoms in love. And furthermore, holy silence even presupposes faith, which is its fertile ground. So this faith helps to uh, make blossom, helps love to blossom. I think that's very well said because we cannot really enter into the science. If we look at these 12 degrees and we don't need to go back over them, they're all challenging, every yes. single one of them. But they're grounded in faith, in the confidence and trust that we have to have in God, that when we silence these different elements, he's taking over more and more the circumstances of our life. Very difficult to do. And those 12 degrees of silence, you said, um, were from the desert. The desert, desert fathers, fathers so. yeah. Okay. In, in his poem, 
romances. St. John of the Cross tells this story of salvation history. I, I encourage people to read it if you haven't. The Romances by St. John of the Cross, certainly in his collected works, but you can find it online um, very easily. At its core, we must remember that the story, the uh, salvation history story, is first and foremost a love story. It's a love story that begins with the Father and the Son and the entering in of the Holy Spirit, the Trinity. And then it goes on to explain the desire on the part of the Father to find a bride for his Son. The bride, of course, is us, the church. Um, And this is really the beginning for our participation in this greatest love story. The Father, wishing to find this bride for his beloved Son, sends the Son on a mission in the still coolness of the night to both find and rescue his bride, again, the church. And we can't fully appreciate this romance or the story if we don't see both the poetic and the heart-wrenching desire on the part of both the father and the son for the well-being of the bride. That's what I love about the poem romances is it really is a love story. And people ask me so often, Francis, I know you get the same question. I've tried this John of the Cross guy. What is he all about? What is he writing about? My answer is always the same. Oh, it's a love story. Yes, Didn't you definitely. see it? <laughs> Didn't you see the love story? It's very much about love. <laughs> well, our call then first uh, is to welcome this bridegroom, uh, most especially here now at Christmas in the Advent season, in anticipation of Christmas. We do this by allowing our souls to become the very shelter that Our Lady is seeking in search for that proper place to give birth to her son. We have to provide the shelter, the stable, the resting place where Mary will deliver us her child. And John echoes this in a poem, Francis, that I know is particularly uh, meaningful for you. You talked about this, and I was uh, successful with your help in finding it. And I'm going to let you take over here because I think... uh, I credit you with having uh, included this in our discussion. Well, it is in the collected edition of St. John of the Cross and in the ended the romances, but some places it refers to it as the Christmas refrain. And here it is, just four lines, but they are potent. I'll say they're pregnant. <laughs> you'll you'll, pregnant you'll laugh when you... Yeah. You'll get it in a minute. All right, here's the, here's the Christmas refrain. The virgin weighed with the word of God comes down the road. If only you will shelter her. So this reminds us of the profound holiness of the night and the mystery that surrounds it. And and I just have to throw in here this little Advent practice that I used to do with my kids when they were younger, Mark. I hope you don't mind. But we'd set up the Advent wreath and we'd put a cradle in the middle. And we had an Advent calendar. And every day uh, they took out pieces of paper with good deeds to do on them. And when they accomplished the deed, they would put them in the cradle in the center so that on Christmas, when Christ was born, we provided a cradle from our hearts of of activities that we did from our heart to um, prepare our hearts to be that cradle for the birth of of the Christ child within each of us. I like that idea. I hope you don't mind. I might steal it for my nine-year-old who's still at home. (laughs) But I I like you, Francis. I like the analogy of the Blessed Mother looking for that place to find shelter and to give birth to her child, uh, our Savior, the bride, uh, the the bridegroom, we the bride. um, And this love story beginning with uh, the son going on this mission. 
I'm going to read one last uh, Bible verse uh, before we take a break, just to sort of set the stage for the linkage of this whole story of silence to uh, the Advent season and our preparation for Christmas. And this comes from Luke chapter 2. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. Well, in keeping with our theme of silence, we'll come back and explain a little bit how that preparation uh, on the part of the shepherds and their experience in the night links to John's teaching on silence. A reminder, you're listening to Carmelite Conversations on Carmelite Spirituality on Radio Maria, a Christian voice in your home. We'll be right back. Let there be light, let there be light again. For into the dark the sun has sent And we will see and we will see once more For unto us the light is born
You're listening to Radio Maria, a Christian voice in your home. We now return to Carmelite Conversations on Carmelite Spirituality with Mark Danis and Francis Harry. Well, welcome back to Carmelite Conversations. As we broke, we had just read the verse from Luke about the shepherds waiting in uh, in the night and uh, visited, of course, by the angel telling them to make haste to the city of Bethlehem, the city of David. A Savior has been born to you. You know, we're trying to operate on a lot of different themes here, Francis, today, and I think most especially the theme, of course, is silence. We are celebrating very much the Feast of St. John of the Cross, and we're linking uh, John's uh, teaching on silence to Elizabeth's uh, experience of it and the impact it had on her life. But also now we're going to tie in the Blessed Mother because we can't uh, talk about silence, about Christmas, um, about holiness without bringing the Blessed Mother into it. Um, we uh, understand uh, the impact of John's teaching on Elizabeth that I mentioned just a moment ago, largely through a little pamphlet that is a treasure. If you can ever find a copy of this, I have to confess it's very difficult to find. I had to uh, <laughs> do some searching myself, ultimately found it in a Marian library and was forced to copy it. I couldn't uh, take it, obviously. Um, and it is available online through something called the Catholic Archives. You can you can search that on the Internet, the Catholic Archives. Uh, there is a cost associated with the participation in that uh, forum. But nonetheless... This pamphlet, and it's nothing more than a pamphlet, is titled A Soul of Silence. It was written by a uh, sister, Anne, of the Heart of Jesus, who knew, uh, or I'm sorry, Amy, of the Heart of Jesus, who knew uh, Elizabeth and wrote about not only her life, but also uh, Elizabeth's own reflections in this uh, particular uh, pamphlet that was published in 1950. Um, and I, I want to preference this with a sentence from one of uh, Elizabeth's own um, reflections in um, uh, her complete works titled Heaven in Faith. This is actually on the 10th day of that, where we see not only the role of silence in Elizabeth's life, which I've just said she got largely from John of the Cross, but most especially for her manifested and this is where it all sort of ties together, Francis, manifested in the Blessed Mother at the time of preparation for Christmas. So it all sort of ties together, and I'm going to let you read this quote from Elizabeth in her complete works. And I'm so glad you brought this quote in, because it was so potent the first time I read it, and every time I just get chills thinking of it. It seems to me that the attitude of the Virgin during the months that elapsed between the Annunciation and the Nativity is the model for interior souls, those whom God has chosen to live within, in the depths of the bottomless abyss. In what peace, in what recollection, Mary lent herself to everything she did, how even the most trivial things became divinized by her, for through it all the Virgin remained the adorer of the gift of God." Yeah. And, you know, we talked a moment ago about the um, importance of uh, this season and, and how so many people, again, try either to create or recreate their best experience of Christmas. We talked about the importance of the gift. And here we have Elizabeth helping us understand 
that the gift has already been given, the gift of God from the very last sentence. What is our best experience of that already best Christmas? It's simply to adore. That Mm -hmm. is the experience. That is uh, how we draw the most out of the Christmas experience. And of course, adoration inherently requires silence on our part. And so we need to just accept this gift, this present of the Lord in this present moment. It is still a gift that keeps giving and to ponder the magnitude of this gift and in our adoration of the Lord. So we we don't want to lose sight of of this great gift from heaven that God became incarnate in the son. Ah. And, And, you know, as Francis says, it is. Entering into that experience, we do it in a, in Advent, the season of Advent, by a very practical suggestion that Francis has offered in how we can create a, a, a series of good acts, charitable acts that constitute the the uh, the manger where the the blessed child will ultimately reside. Like each good uh, act is a is a sliver of straw. <laughs> yeah, and. and uh, Doing that as a a preparation for Advent season, that or any other practical way of preparing our hearts is necessary. But ultimately what we're going to experience at the Christmas uh, event is adoration, a blessing, realization that the greatest gift of Christmas has already been given. You know, uh, back to the, the pamphlet and the importance of silence as part of that preparation uh, it, it is made uh, clear that St. John of the Cross, the mystical doctor of Carmel, that's his title, the mystical doctor, um, was the one who influenced Elizabeth in her own preparation for entering into this silence. In fact, John is credited with the creation of a theological phrase now, known known as a theological term, the nakedness of spirit. And I'm going to, interestingly, I'm going to quote John um, who is quoting the Grinch who stole Christmas <laughs> in, in a way. Uh, but whereas the Grinch said, stop the noise, noise, noise. John says, if you want to enter into this nakedness of spirit, you have to have nothing, nothing, nothing in order to arrive at the all of God. That's from John of the Cross, the ascent of Mount Carmel. And, and it's interesting how um, John is uh, sort of Uh, counseling us, not just in the concept of silence, but also in this idea of uh, stopping all of the things that we are doing as ways of pursuing God, as ways of pursuing um, uh, that that wonderful experience of Christmas. And he says, stop uh, the the doing and, and do the nothing, the elimination of the noise, noise, noise. One must be stripped of everything, John says, both in the natural and the supernatural order. We don't need to elaborate John's teaching about the four levels. We've gone through that, and of course the um, the tapes on that are available. But um, John is very adamant, uh, not just at the Christmas season. Of course, he would teach us this throughout the course of the year. And of course, for Elizabeth, just like for John, we don't enter into that profound silence and preparation uh, waiting for uh, the arrival of the Lord just for our own satisfaction. Indeed, she cautions that uh, doing so just for our own sort of uh, uh, personal uh, gratification can lead to a egoistic self-centeredness. And so she cautions us as she begins to teach us on this journey. And she wants us to forget ourselves. 
and and not look to come to face to face with ourselves, just looking at me, 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 and it's all about me, but rather come face to face with God. So here's what she writes about this. She says, quote, to love means to forget oneself, to lose oneself in the beloved. One who truly loves no longer lives in self, but feels the need of ceaseless self-oblivion. Yeah, and she goes on. Now, this is poetic. This is actually from her poetry, what, what Francis just read. But she goes on she, in, in her writings. We're going to take a, a selection of her writings, which are reflected in this pamphlet, The Soul of Silence, that build on this idea. For Elizabeth, again, silence is those 12 degrees. It's more than just the absence of noise. She says, no, 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 no. We've got to eliminate everything that is a distraction to entering into that interior, to entering into that uh, that cave where the manger will be and adoring our Savior. And so she has some pretty adamant counsel about that. And she's talking about the soul here. What does it matter whether it, meaning the soul, whether it feels or not, whether it is plunged in darkness or in light, enjoys or does not enjoy, it feels a kind of shame at differentiating between these things and despising itself utterly for such want of love. It turns at once to its master for deliverance. And then she goes on talking about the working of self-forgetfulness in the memory. She says, the silence of the memory and of the imagination is most important so that the soul can live fully in the present moment without continually recalling a past which may be either bitter or pleasant or dreaming of a chimerical future. I don't know what that means, Mark. <laughs> uh, it's using the imagination to create uh, an expectation of something that's going to happen. And that's very important because we talked about imagination and, and memory earlier um, and John, of course, counseling against later, later in our prayer life, the use of the imagination. He's always leery of memories. And this, again, is where I say, you know, we have these memories of Christmases past, right? And in many cases, we want to recreate that experience. Or we have an imagination that allows us to project, um, let's just say, the acquisition of a particular gift that we think we want. Or maybe an experience, you know, if I can pull off the perfect dinner party, we project onto that desire um, an experience that we believe will bring us a degree of satisfaction. And no doubt it will. I'm not diminishing the gift or the, uh, the uh, joining of families together in a, in a you know, festive occasion. But what we have to be careful of is that we don't miss the point that that experience, if not centered in Christ in all cases, will always fail to satiate us, satiate us, to fill right. us. We'll be um, left with a void. And, and what she is saying is, in fact, I'll read directly from her. She says, if my desires, my fears, this would be obviously with regard to the things she doesn't want, my joys or my sorrows, if all the impulses coming from these four passions are not completely subjected to God, I shall not be a solitary. Of course, she takes those four a passions that she just described directly from St. John of the Cross. She says, I will not be a solitary. Now think about that. Elizabeth is redefining to some extent what it means to be a solitary person. She's not saying it means to live alone exclusively. In fact, in many cases in Carmel, you don't live alone. What she's saying is if fears, joys, sorrows, and, and desires are not in alignment with God, I will not be a singular person, meaning I'll be distracted. I'll be scattered. casting my, my forces in a scattering way, and I won't be focused on God. And so these are difficult 
uh, uh, challenges that are being presented to us. But at the same time, um, we are given uh, the grace and the mercy uh, to allow us to, to overcome those challenges. And I think you have another reference um, on page 25 uh, to St. John of the Cross that, that you wanted to be sure to get in our conversation here. Yeah, St. John of the Cross, having analyzed the psychological fashion, the obstacles which are opposed to the reign of the Holy Spirit in our souls of contemplatives, insists on the practice of silence, which is so necessary, he says, to a soul desirous of, t- of attaining union with God. He goes on, when a person once understands what has been said to him for his property, he needs neither hear nor say more, but rather to practice what has been said to him silently and carefully in humility, in charity, in self-contempt. In other words, go ahead and study St. John of the Cross. Listen to the messages uh, of Christmas. Listen to uh, the gospel that Francis just read to us a moment ago. But once it has been communicated, there is no longer a need for this back and forth of, the imagination, the memory, the intellect, all of which we talked about silencing. John says we must practice it silently with humility, with charity, with self-contempt, he goes on to say, meaning, you know, let's not let's not project uh, this uh, sort of interior experience into the acquisition of self-satisfaction. And I do have to say that beginners in prayer are not going to probably have this. Okay, so we're we're talking a very about a very deep degree of prayer here. All right. I mean, and and it's something we should aspire to uh, and cooperate in answering God's call. But um, to think that you can just um, start doing it really easily. No, it takes a lot of practice. No, that's true. And in fact, um, I've mentioned reading a couple of times. John uh, talks about reading and studying. I, I want to caution. And, and in part, this is a response to a question that one of our listeners uh, sent us. And we appreciate very much, by the way, when when folks send us questions or feedback. or yeah, I like those emails. Thank yeah. you. Thank and, you, listeners. And, you know, a couple of times folks have said, well, gee, why haven't you done a program on such and such a person or such and such a topic? We're happy uh, to find time to do that because we do want to try to, um, you know, meet, meet the expectations of our listeners and, and uh, give people uh, insight and, and uh, some knowledge on things that they may uh, be seeking. And, and one of the listeners asked a question about how we unite our suffering to Christ. How do we do that? This person said, it's a very good question because you hear about that a lot, Francis. Well, gee, you know, unite your suffering to Christ. What does that mean? It's a very Mm -hmm. fair question. We have some responses on how to do that. First of all, we can practice asceticism. This is a very practical way. John advocates this, especially in the early stages uh, of our spiritual journey. We need uh, to be prepared to practice asceticism, fasting, night vigils, cold showers, um, uh, anything that can help us to, uh, you know, sort of limit our uh, will and our desires. That's that's a very practical means. Practicing renunciation and mortification, right? Absolutely. Now, now uh, beyond that, we have to recognize that the real crosses in our life are seldom the ones that we bring upon ourselves. In fact, they're the ones that most often are imposed on us from the outside. Examples would be a difficult person uh, that we are uh, not all that comfortable being around, economic pressures that cause us to worry about our security, physical suffering, an illness, uh, I don't know, maybe cancer. <laughs> yeah. Um, 
Somebody in the studio can talk about that. It could be any uh, sense of confusion, disruption, source of consternation in our lives. And many times it is simply a sense that we are just not loved by someone as much as we love them. And often this can be true of our relationship with God. You know, these sufferings are not so much ones we create as they are imposed by external forces. You know, we can't control these things. They're often the ones that evoke this sort of reaction like, God, why'd you allow this to happen? Just what am I supposed to learn from this situation? And of course, the answer from God is always the same. I'm giving this to teach you how to love more perfectly. And as someone else told me recently, being chiseled, right? (laughs) Into that work of art, into the image of God, whom you were made in his image and likeness. And that's it. God is always working in us. You know, we sometimes think that God's, uh, you know, off on the side and what's happening is accidental. But of course... Scripture tells us, uh, and our great saints tell us, God is always working in us. We're just not always uh, working with him in that process. So uh, the key to these, of course, these situations is first and foremost, if we want to unite them to the suffering of Christ, accept them in love, which 1 Corinthians 13 tells us very definitively is simply patience and kindness. And you can do this better when you remind yourself that this comes from God's hand whether it's whether we think it's good or bad everything comes from God don't judge it right don't <laughs> right. judge the circumstance that same verse for first uh, Corinthians 13 goes on to say uh, and explain uh, how we are to love in the midst of our crosses when it explains that pure chaste love the love that unites our suffering with the suffering of Christ and I'm quoting now directly from first Corinthians 13 bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. And that's because we know God's in charge (laughs) and we know he loves us and he can't do anything else but love us. You know, that's the number one. And that's the fundamental misunderstanding, Francis. I think that so many people take to this idea of uniting their suffering to the cross. And I don't presume that our our listener uh, fell victim to this, but just to clarify Uh, To conclude that the cross is somehow a means for our paying the price for our sins uh, would be a misunderstanding of the gospel. The truth of the matter is that we can never pay for our sins. We know that. Jesus paid for them. (laughs) Yeah, there's not some scale that's meted out. And once we've suffered enough, the balance has been uh, put back in order. Rather, our crosses are our means of purifying our love, our fidelity to Christ, our own growth into formally, uh, fully formed human persons in the image God always intended us to fulfill. That's what the suffering is about. Now, again, I want to caution that um, we can undertake some of that trial. More often, it's imposed on us from the outside. And our response is simply to unite our suffering in love to Christ. What's a very practical way to do that? Take St. Teresa's advice. See yourself suffering with Christ at the pillar as he's scourged. See him, be with him as he carries the cross. Whisper in his ear as he hangs on the cross. If you, and this is a place where I would say it's perfectly appropriate to use our imagination at the beginning. And eventually what happens is that that encounter will find its way into our heart. And then the imagination isn't necessary anymore. We will experience uh, the pain that Christ endured for our benefit And as a consequence, love will pour out of our soul. How do you best do this? I will say to our listener, not through research and study. That's always beneficial, but it isn't the end game. The end game is prayer. You have to find the answer to that question in prayer. 
And I know Elizabeth of the Trinity had more to say about this. So I quote, Look upon each suffering as a proof of love coming direct from the good God in order to unite you to him. Do not be discouraged by the thought of your miseries. In times of greatest suffering, think that the divine sculptor is using the chisel to beautify his work and remain at peace beneath the hand which shapes you. And she goes on to say, if I stopped at my suffering, it would seem very painful. Yes, but I quickly rise above it in order to plunge into his sufferings, into the abyss of his pain. And this is, of course, what I was referring to when I was saying that we have got to uh, not just uh, accept it in love, but we want to align ourselves with Christ in his own suffering. And then later in that very same um, uh, reflection she talks about becoming the divine model in order that the resemblance to our divine model may be more perfect our union more intimate here is the secret okay everybody take take note here is the secret here here we go forget self leave self behind make no account of self look at the divine master now as francis said and i'm going to reiterate this is um, a very mature level uh, of spirituality and of the contemplative experience of life. Uh, we shouldn't presume that somehow we're ushered into this uh, in a matter of months or in a short period of time. This takes practice. It takes prayer. It takes grace. Uh, but it's very important that we understand that when we enter into the silence and when we try to align our suffering or as we're preparing, as we discussed earlier uh, in this Advent season, for the arrival of our Lord, um, we have to enter into that silence. You know, again, uh, our theme for this conversation was, in the silence of the night, there is music. And because this is as much a celebration of the Advent season and the approaching gift of Christmas, we want to listen again to how Elizabeth so skillfully and poetically weaves her own experience through John's teaching. Elizabeth reflects back on John's image of the sweetness of this encounter of love even when lived out in trial, from that very same uh, pamphlet, she says, In the divine silence, the soul seems to hear a harmony of sublimest music. It is a tranquil and quiet intelligence, without sound of voices. Her beloved is this silent music, because this harmony of spiritual music is known and experienced in him. The three persons of the Blessed Trinity dwell within the soul, which loves them in truth. And when the soul realizes that what, what riches it possesses, all the natural or supernatural joys which might come to it from creatures or even from God, only adduce it to enter within itself to enjoy the substantial good which it possesses, possesses which is nothing else but God himself. Boy, that was potent. Well, let's close by returning to the refrain of Our Lady. The virgin wade with the word of God comes down the road, if only you will shelter her. So we will read from um, Elizabeth of the Trinity's Collected Works, page 141, in case you want to go back and read it yourself. This is the unspeakable secret that she kept in mind and pondered in her heart, which no tongue can tell or pen describe, this mother of grace will form my soul 
so that her little child will be a living, striking image of her firstborn, the Son of the Eternal, he who was the perfect praise of his Father's glory. Well, uh, I think, Francis, we are come to a close, and How I think we've just enough time. Uh, would you mind closing us in prayer? Well, I think this prayer is perfect for this conversation. Um, it was written by um, a sister, Catherine J. Hermes, H-E-R-M-E-S. I hope I didn't mispronounce that, but um, it is from an article that she wrote on strength for your week. So be it. So let us get quiet, silent, and let us pray in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. O silent one, light in my darkness, light I cannot see, fire whose warmth I cannot feel. If I may not feel your presence, so be it. I'll remain in your dark presence, unblinking. I will stand at the ready as the mystic silence of your love penetrates my heart there will be a dawn i know there will be a dawn there must be a dawn but until the first streaks of light pierce the night and turn it into morning i will live in faith that you are here beside me you know you care whatever way you wish to be with me so be it i will remain with you Amen. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, a reminder, you've been listening to Carmelite Conversations on Carmelite Spirituality on Radio Maria, Christian Voice in your home. Until we're with you again next, I want to wish all of you a very blessed Advent. And please take a moment, find some time in the middle of the night to be silent with our Lord, adore him, and prepare for his coming. God bless. <laughs>